Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. This episode marks our one year anniversary. So one year since we first launched I could think of no other guest that I'd be so honored to have on for this episode as none other than Dr. Earl Campbell, a.k.a. Get the Scope. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me. Uh, it's definitely an honor to, to be featured. Yeah, Dr. Campbell, for those of you that don't know, he is an advanced interventional gastroenterologist. He's currently practicing in Atlanta. Um, he's all over social media. You can see him um, by his handle at Earl Campbell. MD, and we've been able to follow his progress through fellowship and just for pure entertainment because he's always posting something that that's entertaining. So Earl, good good to actually have him live to, to chat. Yeah, it's always always a pleasure talking to you. Um, so Dr. Campbell, starting off, you are an advanced interventional gastroenterologist. So can you talk to us about what that is and what a typical day is like for you in your practice? Yeah, definitely. So, um, uh, of course, I did my gastroenterology fellowship first, and then I did advanced uh, interventional endoscopy uh, fellowship after that. So, um, the difference with uh, an advanced interventional endoscopist is um, we tend to do a lot of work. One of the larger aspects of the practice is dealing with pancreatic and biliary uh, diseases. Whereas a gastroenterologist, uh, some of the bread and butter cases are, of course, upper endoscopies and colonoscopies or colon cancer screening. Um, larger part of my practice includes basically diagnosing, treating uh, malignancies of the pancreas, bile ducts, liver. Uh, we do interventional procedures uh, involving obstructions of the bile duct or the, the bowels. So if someone comes in, for example, with colon cancer and they uh, have an obstruction from the mass, uh, I can go in and place a stent to open up the area to then allow um, the patient to be able to uh, use the bathroom again. Uh, sometimes a patient comes in jaundice. You may have seen someone even walking down the street. Sometimes that's just there. You can see their eyes and their skin are yellow. Uh, sometimes that's due to an obstruction in the bile ducts. And so we do um, procedures called ERCPs, which is short for endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. Uh, mm-hmm. We can go into the bile ducts, get a good look by injecting contrast, and then place a step to relieve the obstruction. Um, and similar things in other areas of the digestive tract, people have esophageal cancer, they can't even swallow any food, we can uh, fix that endoscopically as well. So those are just a, a small bit of some of the things we do. Um, another thing is uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, people have masses in their pancreas and usually the gold standard for diagnosis is called endoscopic ultrasound. I have an ultrasound program under my scope that uses sound waves to, um, to look through the wall of the stomach and the small bowel. Uh, so that I can get a good look at the pancreas. And I, I stick a needle through the digestive tract into the pancreas to obtain tissue sampling uh, to obtain a diagnosis so that the oncologist can then move forward with treatment if the diagnosis is, of course, uh, positive for malignancy. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and I saw in some of your pictures, because you do post some very uh, educational stuff on Instagram, sometimes you get like a double scope thing. You'll, you'll scope somebody and then something pops out and then you do some more scoping. Uh, Yes. So um, for individuals with um, obstruction in the bile duct, uh, especially some that I'm concerned for cholangial carcinoma, which is a cancer of the bile duct, we have what's called a cholangioscope. Uh, so it's a smaller scope that goes through my larger, uh, we'll call it duodenoscope to do the ERCP. So it's a uh, smaller scope coming out of the bigger scope. And that smaller scope, I drive that 
into the bile duct itself. So I'm getting direct visualization of the inside of the bile ducts. Um, and I can use it if someone has a stone, a large stone uh, in their bile duct. I can then use what we call lithotripsy, shockwave lithotripsy, and basically, or technically EHL, electrohydraulic lithotripsy, uh, is what we call it. And basically use these blasts of energy and uh, to basically shatter the stone. Uh, and then we could then withdraw the stone. And if someone has a cancer in their bile duct, I'm able to see that mass in the bile duct. Then we have these little things called spy bites. And I can go and directly look at the, in the bile duct at the mass and take these tiny bites. That's dope, man. It's really uh, love watching the things that you do. You know, I'm a little versed in the uh, GI world due to my profession, but you know, what would you say for the real heroes of the uh, GI clinic, the anesthesiologists and CRNAs? Yeah, that definitely is always a pleasure working with uh, the anesthesia team. We not be able to do what we do without um, uh, you guys being there to keep the patients not only sedated. It's a lot more than you know just putting someone to sleep and waking them up, but keeping them alive throughout the, the procedure so that you know everyone can, as a team can make sure the patient has a successful outcome. I was not expecting you to be so positive, but you're on your best behavior today, Dr. Campbell. <laughs> you know we have an audience, so I gotta oh, be good. Okay, right, right, right. Um, so that, <laughs> in addition to the procedure days, you have a clinic component as well? Uh, yes, right now. So um, my uh, schedule is a mix of clinic and um, and uh, procedures. Uh, right now, as I'm continuing to build my practice, the clinic days will continue to decrease. And then my procedure days will continue to increase to the point where I'll likely be doing eventually procedures, you know, four to five days a week and then clinic maybe one or half day um, a week. Um, when I do clinic, usually in the clinic, I'm seeing individuals that were referred to me for those things, like I was mentioned, whether it's a new mass in the liver or the pancreas, the gallbladder, and then I'm um, going in to do a diagnosis or someone that has an obstruction. So I'll see them in clinic. I like to see my patients beforehand, talk to them about the risk and kind of explain exactly what's going to be getting done. And then um, uh, I'll then see them on my procedure day. Uh, and then you also may ask, well, how, how are you having... Um, so many procedure days, unless clinic where those patients coming from. So also, you know, the other providers in the practice that see patients. Um, and then if there's a person that needs an interventional uh, endoscopic procedure, then they would uh, can place that patient on my schedule as one of my partners. So Nice. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down for us. So, Dr. Campbell, if we go back to the beginning, what was your pathway to medicine? You're uh, Jamaican-American of Jamaican heritage. Your parents mm-hmm. extremely brilliant. Your mom is a pharmacist. Your dad is a... Uh, pulmonary critical care physician, how did that impact the trajectory of your life and when you decided to go into medicine? Yeah, so um, one thing I always really uh, loved about my parents, and I hope to carry out the same thing with my children, is uh, they never, I never really felt pushed or forced one way or another into um, medicine. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of times there may be individuals because their parents are in uh, the field of medicine, doctors, they're actually also, you know, really pushing their kids to do the same thing. Um, but they never did that with me. Uh, and I think it's very important because, as you know, medicine, you know, it's a hard, long road. So unless it's something that you really love, you're passionate about, it's going to be really hard to push through that during the times when it gets really hard. And you're kind of asking yourself, you know, why am I doing this? You're not going to, it's going to be hard to really get through those moments when, you're doing it for someone else rather than yourself. So I really appreciate them for that. Um, I will say definitely that exposure to medicine being around um, them definitely likely influenced my decision to uh, go into medicine. Interestingly, not too many people know this, but um, for most of my life when I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian from childhood up until after my freshman year in college. And I actually had an uncle that was a vet. 
Um, he went to Tuskegee, then he uh, lived in Jamaica. So I used to spend my summers in Jamaica growing up, and I spent a lot of time basically shadowing him. Uh, but my during my freshman year of college, his wife uh, actually passed, my aunt passed from uh, breast cancer. Uh, and then that summer after my freshman year, I was working in an animal uh, surgical research lab, and I got to speak with uh, MDs, DBM, PhDs, and kind of just um, getting their different uh, perspectives on their career. And after that, I kind of decided that I wanted to use my interest and my skills to pursue an MD as opposed to a DBM. Fortunately, that didn't change um, much in terms of what I needed to or change anything at all in terms of what I needed to do um, at that stage in my undergrad career because I was a biology major and the prerequisites were, um, were the same, but that experience, you know, having someone pass from cancer, uh, in my family, and then also getting to work in a, a research lab, uh, those influenced my decision to, uh, be a medical doctor as opposed to a doctor of veterinary medicine. Nice. And what was your experience at Howard that you, you post, you know, as a fellow alumni of Howard, I wasn't, I didn't go to the undergrad, so I'm not real, real Howard alumni, I guess. But I went to medical school. You were there at the undergrad. How was that? Man, Howard, I, I loved it. Like, if I had to go back and do it over again, 10 times over again, choose <laughs> Howard, I would. Like, I, you know, I can't say enough about it. I really love Howard. I feel that like it prepared me well, um, laid the foundation for where I am today. So anyone that asks me about Howard or even the HBCU experience, um, I definitely encourage it. And, and I definitely... Um, highly recommend Howard still to this day. It was just, it was a great time. I enjoyed it. Um, it was well prepared. I enjoyed the life experiences, the people that I met. Um, and I feel like, I, you know, I can't really speak for individuals at other institutions, but I, outside of HBCUs, but I feel like for people that went to HBCUs, they tend to continue to keep lifelong connections with individuals they went to undergrad with more so than people that went to other um, non-HBCUs. That's just mm -hmm. my perspective. So uh, I love the the lifelong connections, friendships that I, I gained uh, when I went to Howard, but I loved it. So you came out of Howard, you went to University of Maryland for medical school, and mm -hmm. then on to... Yeah, so after yeah. I finished med school at Maryland, I stayed there uh, for my internal medicine residency. So that was three years. Then uh, I was fortunately selected to um, be a chief resident. So I stayed there for an additional year. So uh, my uh, fourth year after uh, med school. And then I went to Yale for my gastroenterology fellowship, which was another three years, and then stayed there for my advanced endoscopy fellowship, which was an additional year. So that came out in total after graduating med school, uh, eight years of training after uh, finishing my school. Yeah. And I think the question a lot of people have based on, uh, knowing you and your social media, you went from Howard to Yale. How was that transition? You know, it was, it was, uh, you know, definitely a, a different experience, but I, I didn't feel it wasn't a difficult adjustment for me. I'll say, cause you know, a lot of the schools that I went to for, for middle school, high school were, um, not predominantly black schools. So, uh, I was comfortable in those environments. Uh, it was just the, the biggest difference I'd probably say is, you know, being at Howard and, you know, interacting there. I'm also at that time preparing undergrad Earl versus, you know, postgraduate <laughs> or doctorate Earl, you know, so I was also at different stages in my life, but I'd say that being at Howard, being at HBCU, you, you can feel like you could just, be you at all times, if that makes sense, you know, and you can kind of just let your guard down a bit. Um, when I went to Yale, you know, it's a different environment, predominantly white uh, environment. And so a lot of times you feel that you kind of have, you almost, 
in a sense, become two versions of yourself. You know, there's almost like a version of you when you step into the hospital and there's another version of you when you, when you leave the hospital. Yeah. Uh, that kind of reminds me, I didn't even think about it this till now. I forgot uh, when I was interviewing there for fellowship, I remember, uh, it was a older white man that interviewed me and, uh, one of the, my, um, interviewers. And he said, he basically gave me a heads up. He's like, I just want to let you know, this is not like, and Maryland has a good amount of minority positions. He's like, I want to let you know, this is, it's not like Maryland. So he's basically in so many ways huh. letting me know that there wasn't as much, um, I was not going to encounter as many individuals that looked like me when I was there. And he didn't mean he was a very nice guy. I mean, we worked together all throughout fellowship. Uh, he was, he was, it was a great uh, relationship. Uh, so he didn't mean that in a negative way. It was more so just him giving me a heads up, uh, what I was getting into, you know? Yeah. That's good. But you, you went there, you survived, you thrived, you stayed on, for your advanced fellowship, and you were the first uh, African American uh, or first black male. What are you? Yeah, you know, African American or Jamaican? What do you? What do you call yourself, bro? <laughs> African American black. I was the first black uh, advanced ambassador fellow at Yale. So I asked myself, uh, you know, something that's still in my mind. Uh, like at this stage in the game, if my kids wanted to go to an Ivy League institution for undergrad, how yeah. would I feel about it? My thoughts are, I actually feel like I would prefer them to go to HBCU an undergrad. Really? Uh, and yeah, so, you know, I've had some conversations with friends that went to Ivy League schools for undergrad. Uh, and I've often heard stories about them, um, with teachers or whether it be, um, like advisors at the university really actually discouraging them from pursuing medicine, basically saying, you know what, looking at, you know, your grades, your scores, you probably should consider something else, you know? Uh, and a lot of times I feel like, of course, that's, that's race driven. They're seeing this black person in front of them and they feel like, oh, you may not be up to snuff to make it into medical school or may not, not be able to make the cut. Um, and I never felt, and, you know, speaking with a lot of my colleagues that went to HBCUs, I don't feel like we had that experience. I know I for sure did not have that experience where someone was telling me, you know, maybe you should consider other things. And so I feel like undergrad is kind of that cornerstone, that foundation that you're building everything else on. And if you have someone that's really hitting at your confidence or trying to tear you down that early on, it can kind of alter your career path. And I'm sure there's a lot of individuals that had they gone to HBCU and they had other individuals that looked like them, that encouraged them, that told them that they could do it. They probably would pursue medicine, but when they go somewhere else where they're not the majority uh, they have someone that doesn't look like them telling them that they may not be able to make the cut and they alter their life decisions, decisions based on that. You know, that's very influential. So I feel that um, that support that you need early in the game uh, is provided by HBCU. And I don't think a lot of times it's provided at um, predominantly white institutions. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, you know, definitely something that you have to talk, uh, talk about and think about now that you've got uh, some kids to, to worry about and to bring up. Which, speaking of, so at what point in your career did you meet your wife and get married? So I actually knew, so I knew my wife through um, through mutual friends through church. So I'm Sunday Venice Christian, and um, we have these conferences, like region-based conferences. Uh, and so there are different events that are churches in the area that'll hold together. So uh, she was in the same conference, and so she had a lot of mutual friends. So I've known her since, I want to say, since maybe undergrad, yeah, since undergrad. And then we started dating my second year. Uh, we started talking my second year of med school, and then we were dating by my third year. So 
she was, not correctly, two years behind me at Maryland. So once she came to Maryland for dental school, I was there for Maryland at the time. I was a third year. She was a first year. Um, and that's when we started dating. So we've been talking for a bit beforehand, but once she, she uh, came and she was at the same school in the same city, uh, that's when we, we made it official. And then we got married within a few weeks after I graduated from that school. Gotcha. And, and along the way, or especially towards the end of your training, your family really got bigger with the addition of the twins. How was it like to manage a full family while still being uh, in training? Man, that was probably one of the toughest uh, periods during my training. Cause you know, we had, we weren't necessarily planning to have kids um, at that point in the game. I kind of always had said, it was the first year of fellowship is the, is the busiest year, the toughest year. So uh, my thought was always like, okay, towards the end of, or after finishing my first year, you know, we can have our first kid and maybe after I finish all my training, have another kid. Um, but we found out it was actually my first weekend, I think in Connecticut, I was still in orientation for fellowship. We found out she was pregnant. And then by February, it's so about halfway through my first year we had, and there were two kids. And so um, <laughs> it was definitely, definitely adjustment, you know, even just from a financial standpoint, you know, now I'm a fellow with a wife and twins. It definitely helped that, you know, to me, it was a dentist. So I, you know, I was referred to her as my, my sugar mama at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, also still like as the, as the man head of the household, you kind of want to be in a position to provide for your kids and your wife, but it was just tough and being in training, you know, you're in fellowship. And the other thing that made it tough is our first year of fellowship, we're not allowed to moonlight, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of those things you want to do is moonlight and make some additional money uh, on the side to provide for your family. But they didn't allow us that first year. You want us to really be focusing on fellowship. So that was, that was definitely financially it was stressful. Um, and just also being able to manage waking up, you know, throughout the night and then having to go and have long days in the hospital. Uh, and really the probably actually may be even a bit more stressful than the, the kids actually being here was that last trimester of uh, pregnancy. I mean, to me, uh, um, uh, during the third trimester, we found out that uh, my daughter, her birth, her um, intrauterine weight was went below like the fifth percentile. So to me, I had to go and get a steroid injection to promote lung maturity in case uh, my daughter could be delivered early. Uh, so she was diagnosed with intrauterine growth restriction. So at that point, then they were doing a um, fetal stress test every other week and then twice a week uh, cord dopplers. So, I mean, we were at the maternal fetal medicine clinic twice a week. So uh-huh. then trying to manage going to, you know, making it to her appointments and then also still trying to, you know, be productive as a fellow and doing, being on top of what I needed to do. And then just the overall, just mental stress of dealing with the fact, you know, are both of my kids even going to make it or is it going to be one, you know? So, yeah, that's, and that's crazy. Cause you never know what people are going through with this podcast. It shows that we all have our own pathways and, you know, some people will look at me like, Oh, well, well, Earl had his, his parents were educated and they paved the pathway for him. Meanwhile, other people I talked to, you know, got it out the mud and, and didn't have any infrastructure, but here you are, you know, for trying to do the job as a, a first year fellow in a new environment, uh, new responsibilities, but the incredible stress and responsibilities you have to your family and, and having to manage both of those, it just goes to show you can't look at somebody from the outside and really know what they're going through and what's going on. Yeah, I remember this. The most stressful moment was literally each time I went and we're seeing them do the ultrasound. And each time you're, uh, you know, it's almost like a, uh, this is a weekly basis. You're going there and you're looking and you're like, man, I hope. 
hope my child is still moving, you know? So, wow. yeah. If the good Lord was looking out. You got two beautiful kids, which you, you, uh, I love seeing your relationship because you do post them on your Instagram and some of the things they do is absolutely hysterical. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. They're, they're grown so fast and they have their own strong personalities. And it's just interesting to see, um, my personality, my wife's personality in these, in these little people. Yeah. So how do you manage uh, your schedule now as you're both uh, working professionals, two kids, mm -hmm. how do you make the family work? Yeah. The, the biggest thing is of course, childcare, you know, so we have uh, someone that's there throughout the day because both my wife and I work, the kids go to school during the day, but then we still need to have someone um, that's there with them after they get home from school until we get home. Uh, that was something we kind of navigated with, uh, when we were in uh, Connecticut, when I was in fellowship, my wife was working. There's some days where I'm late in the procedure. She's late in the procedure. Uh, the nanny's going to be, uh, it's almost time for the nanny to go. So I'm there like, fortunately we had a good, um, circle there, a good network, you know, so I'd call a friend, they're able to go and kind of watch the kids after the nanny leaves until we get home. So fortunately now, you know, we're able to have uh, childcare until later, uh, in the evening. So that definitely helps. Uh, and it really kind of comes down to, it's really all about teamwork, you kind of get to this point, um, you know, that's kind of early on after the kids are born where you all kind of just play off of each other in a sense where you kind of like, just know what the other person needs to do or when the other person needs help, you know, communication is key. But a lot of the times too, you're just kind of just working together without even really needing to voice it. You kind of just kind of can tell when someone may need a little bit more help with this and kind of just have our, our, our little routine. Um, uh, when they come home, the kids are with the nanny. And then when my wife comes home, she's, you know, sometimes some days and some days and then I make it home before her some days when she gets uh, home before me. But when I get home, you know, that's like a really exciting part of the day is coming home and just getting to see my kids and, and play with them. During my events, I suppose there's a lot of days where I, you know, I may have gone days without seeing my kids more so because I was leaving early before my kids even woke up. And then I get home after they're ready in bed and, you know, you don't want to wake them up. So yeah, sometimes yeah. you just open up the door and just kind of peek in there. And you never, you know, at that stage, you know, a lot of times you're like, well, it's still early. They're young. They don't remember. And I'll never forget when I was leaving one morning, I actually was leaving a little bit later one morning during fellowship when my kids were downstairs. So I got to see them that morning. And I said uh, to my daughter, I said, bye, Kyla. And she said, see you tomorrow, daddy. And I was <laughs> like, oh, wow. <laughs> But now, you know, how my schedule is, uh, I have a lot of weekends that are free. So during the week, the days may sometimes be long. I have, we have childcare. And when I get home, I spend time with the children. And then during the week, the weekend, a lot of times just, you know, a lot of time for me to spend with, uh, with the family. That's good. It's beautiful. So Dr. Campbell, we got to talk about it. Social media, because you are an influencer, an entertainer. You're one of the most famous people I know. When did you start using uh, Instagram and when did you start blowing up? What was your pathway to uh, influencer? Uh, so I think I started that my Instagram page, I think it was July 2017. So it was the summer in between, basically the summer at the very beginning of my fellowship. I started fellowship in 2016. Um, so at that point, one, I had a co-fellow that was like, oh, you know, you should consider doing this page. My friend does one and kind of you can talk about medicine, be a voice for the community, et cetera. And then really the the impetus to me actually making that page, I had this um, IG page that reached out to me through Facebook. Fortunately, I, I rarely, I don't have Facebook Messenger. I'm on my laptop and I happen to see it. Uh, and they were like, okay, can you give us like a little bio? Tell us about yourself. We want to feature you on our page. So I said, okay, I can do that. And then they had asked in that, they'd asked for 
my um, IG tag. And I was like, Ugh. like I just had at that time, I just had like a personal page. And I was like, you know what? This is probably a good time for me to then make a separate, you know, doctor focused page. Um, so I made that page. Uh, and then I was featured on, on their site, featured on their page. And then I got a, a significant number of followers from, from that. And then um, what really kind of grew my page, interest, interestingly, was not medicine related at all. I had a picture of um, my grandfather, my father, myself, and my son. So it was four generations, Earl the first or the fourth. And that photo went viral. And um, really, my page kind of initially blew up from, from that. Uh, and then I just, you know, started just kind of just posting things related to my life and medicine. And the funny thing is now I don't, I haven't posted on my personal page. I don't, uh, this one, honestly, I'm probably just deleted in years. Cause initially my thought was, okay, I'll post mostly about medicine stuff on this page and then family stuff on the other page. But there are little spurts here and there where I featured things just like on my family. And I kind of noticed people were really gravitating towards that because, you know, a lot of the feedback I was getting early on were like, you know, Hey, we really like your page. Cause you show, uh, you know, you show, kind of like that full spectrum of what a doctor's life is like, you know, yeah. so it's not just all just, okay, super professional on this and just talking about medicine related stuff all the time, but I'd show kind of like me outside of the hospital. Um, and so then over time, then I started just tripling in more the aspects of my life and my family. And then it kind of just became the only page that I really use because everything was integrated in there and, you know, it made sense to really show people, you know, doctors, we're just like other people. And I, I think a lot of things too, initially that really kind of drew people to my page and they're kind of shocked, you know, when I'm coming into the hospital, I'm listening to rap for some trap music and they're just like, you know, it's like, Oh wow. Like a doctor is listening to that. So I just know that people kind of like that genuine showing all aspects of my life perspective, you know, kind of just, how me kind of just get into, get comfortable in the sense of just getting to my own comfort zone and just showing them, you know, really what, what life is like just as a person just as a physician and that, you know, we're not, you know, just super dry people that just talk about medicine all the time that we have our lives. We like to have fun, you know, so showing educational things, showing funny things, you know, and I love, I just love laughing making people laugh. You know, I, I see patients with cancer every day. So, you know, in a sense too, it's a, uh, it's a way to just kind of decompress as well. Yeah. So a big word that gets thrown around is professionalism. We hear about people's uh, social media is getting looked at by their job or their residency program, and things aren't necessarily black and white on what is and is not professionalism, but some things get frowned at, you know, maybe it depends on who's posting and, and how they look. But for you, how have you navigated professionalism with uh, what what you post? What are your rules you follow? Yeah, so... <laughs> It's funny you ask that question, one of my rules, because sometimes people make me feel I don't really have rules on my page. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the biggest thing, first and foremost, for any physician, that I, this is like number one, two, three, and four is, you know, uh, just making sure you respect HIPAA, you know. So I don't have anything in there regarding patient identifiers. Even a lot of times if I may post something procedure-related, of course, it's all de-identified. Um, and I post the procedure for um, educational purposes. Uh, I won't even have um, lots of them even posted on that day because I don't mm -hmm. even want any way to somebody even try to associate, you know, what day this procedure was done with what they're seeing, and I don't at what hospital that that what procedure was done at. So the biggest thing is really just protecting your patients' privacy. Uh, and if you're going to post something educational, make sure you remove all identifiers, don't timestamp it. So just being smart in that regard. Um, I want to say a lot of people say to try and avoid political things, but 
honestly, I feel that uh, I comment on political things all the time. And to be real, over this past year and a half, especially, I just yeah. felt honestly, if you didn't even want to speak about what's going on politically, then uh, I don't know. I feel kind of way about it. There's just over this past year, two years, there's been too much going on um, for you to in a sense, not say anything, you know, before yeah. it's like, okay, you may not agree with this president or that president. And you may have these thoughts and not voice it, but there was just some things that are just so blatantly racist that are going on. It's like, no, I you know, got to speak on this. So I think the biggest thing, honestly, are, um, HIPAA. Some people may say, oh, don't post yourself out drinking with this whole thing. Professionalism is a very gray area. I remember we saw the, um, the paper that the vascular surgeons put all put out about yeah, um, yeah, yeah. professionalism is docs posting in bikinis. And then, uh, all, a lot of our, um, uh, female physician colleagues posted, you know, their bikini pics. Like, Hey, how is this not professional? So we got to realize that this whole terminology about professionalism and what the, those, those rules are and boundaries around professionalism. A lot of that is, is based on, um, what, Older white males decided this. So uh, it's not really, there's no concrete thing on professionalism outside of what I'd say, what I'd mentioned, but um, it's more so also being aware of where you work, yeah. your patient population, the individuals that you work with, being very cognizant of that. You know, so if you're in, you know, fortunately my practice is a black owned practice, you know, um, I work with them, yeah, with a lot of other black physicians. And so, um, I feel comfortable just being able to be myself. It's not an issue. And, um, even if that, my, the practice I told me it was, it was a few weeks ago, we had a discussion. They're like, yeah, we reviewed, looked through your entire, all your posts beforehand. <laughs> and they, you know, they still, they still, uh, took me home. So that was definitely comforting. And they were scrolling and for days. To, huh? They were huh? scrolling for days to get through all your stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I was fortunate enough that, um, yeah, I, Every institution I realized is very, is so many variations. I remember I had a friend that did a surgery rotation as a student at Stanford and they came in, he's doing like this uh, fellowship um, uh, for a few months and they came over there. Uh, he's in the OR. They had professional photographers that came, they took photos of him and they even sent it to him and they're like, Oh, encourage him to post it. And then I had um, uh, someone else that were rotating at another hospital and that hospital doesn't even want you to take any photos in the building at all. So wow. you have one hospital that's actually there coming in with professional photographers of you in the OR taking photos and encouraging you to post. And you have another hospital where they don't want you to take anything inside the building at all. So it's really hard to give these blanket, um, recommendations outside of knowing what their, the social media guidelines are, or rules are at your hospital, being aware of that. Um, like I had a friend that she's faculty at university of Michigan. Now she got faculty there. She was there for fellowship also. And their program director was encouraging them. Like, I think she made a Twitter page probably because her program director was like, Hey, we want you all to have a social media presence, especially on Twitter. We want you all to be out there tweeting. Huh. And so I, a lot of, uh, it's, it's just so interesting to see how some people are, <laughs> get into trouble over social media and you have other places, programs that are really pushing it. I feel like um, a lot of hospitals, facilities, organizations that are forward thinking um, will push social media because they're understanding the influence and power of it. And those that are kind of restricting it um, are still very old school. I was fortunate enough that I never ran into any issues at Yale. Surprisingly, a lot of people probably would be like, man, how did you not get yeah, in any trouble? We're, like, we're all surprised. I never once had anyone not once say, hey, you know, 
you should probably take this down. I'm like, never. I mean, in fact, Yale, the Yale GI division, they wanted me to run their Twitter page. And, but I just, between my social media family, I just didn't have time to do that as well. I helped them out with it sometimes, but yeah, it was quite the opposite. I never had anyone saying, I hate on posts. They actually wanted me to help them with their stuff. So um, yeah, I remember when like a news channel wanted to interview me and uh, I was like, just before, or no, it was, I was going to do the, the COVID series, yeah, the mini yeah. series with Fox and um, other stuff, you know, like these podcasts and um, news articles and at one time interviews, that's one thing, but this was actually recording in the hospital doing a whole like COVID diaries. Um, I was like, you know, let me just make sure I run this through the proper channels. And they ran that through, um, uh, through the Yale uh, media division. And they were like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. They like, they didn't make issues because I didn't, Motivation for asking something about COVID, and I'm putting information out there, and they get upset with me. Especially at that point, I was towards the end of my advanced fellowship, and I was like, you know, I'm not trying to trip up at all before I finish. Right. So there's no issues. Uh, NPR had I uh, did an interview with NPR, um, and they actually reached out to the Yale um, to the Yale media, and they Yale actually let me come over. They actually set me up with an appointment over at the it's like a whole Yale recording studio. It's like wow. Uh, I was in this whole room and I think it was like soundproof with the fancy mic and everything. And I actually recorded, um, the, they NPR dialed into there and then we recorded it in the Yale studio. So uh, they were nothing but su- supportive. And so uh, I was just very, sometimes when you're in the situation to really realize how, um, good you had to hear other people, um, that are telling their stories where they're being told to take down this post and that post off of like minute things like, Oh, you're the hospital was in the background of this photo. Yeah. Can you take this down? Like, Man, yeah. So, I mean, I had so many. My it was all over my page. I was different things in the hospital, in the procedure room. Um, yeah, it wasn't a problem at all. I mean, I sent clippings from me doing a procedure in the room to. It was on um, CNBC. I never had any <laughs> problems. So, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's such a wide spectrum on like uh, tolerance to social media, and so yeah, I felt like there were no, it was nothing but supportive there. Still, but man. the big thing, of course, is HIPAA. Um, of course, anything um, that's uh, like hate speech, of course, about race, gender, avoid those things. Um, and then even if it is HIPAA compliant, avoid talking negatively about your patients. Um, and of course, talking negatively about people that you work with. You know, those are things I would say are professional as opposed to dress, how you, what you wear, hair color. I, you know, there's no restrictions on those things in my mind. Uh, although speak, speaking of people you work with, you got to bring back uh, what, what's her name? The, the tech from Yale that was always in your videos. Oh, uh, oh, um, Stephanie. Miss Stephanie. Yeah, I, you know I thought about doing an IG live with her. Uh, yeah, I miss her, man. She was, she was, she was great. She was great. That's awesome. Man. And she always. I, there are some people I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure their main reason for me was just to see her on my <laughs> on my uh, on my page. Yeah, she she was. Awesome. Well, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. We got to ask a couple questions on the way out the door. Um, you know, the new thing is TikTok. We got dancing docs, dancing PAs. Everybody's dancing. <laughs> will, will Dr. Campbell be putting on some, some dancing shoes anytime soon? I don't think anytime soon, but I will say at least at most likely if I'm, I don't see myself doing like one of these dancing educational videos. Honestly, it's kind of hard sometimes when I'm watching these videos to try and gather the information because there's too much things popping around the screen, but then they're also dancing in the background and I'm trying to read the information that's popping up and it's disappearing so quickly. It's very difficult. Um, but me, I, I do have a TikTok. I've not posted, I've account, but I've not posted anything on it yet. 
But when I see myself uh, getting on TikTok more so, I could see if I'm dancing on there, it's likely going to be like uh, when my kids are getting a little bit older and they're probably going to want to do like dances and stuff with me. <laughs> no, none of that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? The Sequoia. How long have you had a Sequoia? How long are you going to hang on to that bad boy? Man, my Sequoia is uh, 06. I got it in 2009. I have it's probably hit 190,000 miles now, probably. Um, so I'm, you know, I'll probably hold on to it until the wheels fall off, to be honest with you. Do I get a car before another car before those wheels fall off? I may, but I'm just like not in any rush. Like I bought the car cash in 2009, so I never had a car note on it. So I just been used to that. It's like I have no need to now try and pick up a car note. So. Yeah, just you know, my mind and financial goals on other things at this time. So, yeah, gotcha, yeah. Gotcha. Speaking of financial goals, Dr. Campbell, as a high value man living in the city of Atlanta, has, has it changed you? <laughs> has it changed me? No, I think I, you know, I, I think I'm the same person, and I like the same things. But now I just have the money to be able to get those things. Yeah, so that's what's but up. I don't really think it's it's necessarily changing me who I am. I feel like I'm still a down earth person. I kick it with the same people that I started with. A uh, little little another question we got or feedback they want you to bring back uh, Docs After Dark with Doctor Triggs. <laughs> you know, it's funny if you mentioned that because I was just thinking about that today. We may test it out, bringing it back again. Um, it was getting a little wild, you know? The, the individuals and the audience were getting a little wild with the questions and commentary. So I was like, you know, we probably need to cool off on this for a bit. We may bring it back. And in fact, we may do, talking about doing a little, this year we're thinking about doing a crossover event with the ladies that do the scrubs off. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, IG Live, uh, where it'd be like me and one of the women on their show and then Triggs and one of the women on, on their show. But... Um, now during the, the latter portion of this pandemic, I've seen it now opened it up to four individuals. Oh yeah, yeah. So we may actually just do a thing where all four of us get on there. I think that would be awesome because then we'd also even have in there a single man and woman and a married man and woman in there. So we kind of have like all perspectives covered in there. So I think that'd be a really good. I think if we come back. We may come back with the the four of us. I'll be there for it. All right, Doctor uh, Campbell. As we close out, I know you're doing a little bit of work with Get the Scope and a couple other things on the horizon. What can you tell us about that for now? Obviously, stay tuned. That's it? <laughs> what more do you want me to say about it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Again, this was our one year anniversary, so, so happy to have you on the show. A part of the reason I started this was after you started a group chat in the middle of the COVID pandemic, a lot of uh, black physicians were able to collaborate and get together. So I do in part thank you for bringing this platform to fruition. Um, where can folks follow you? Well, we know where they can follow you, but go ahead and, and tell us where we can uh, watch you. All right, my handle on Instagram is Earl Campbell MD. It's the same for Twitter. I actually do not know what my TikTok handle is, but I haven't posted on there anyway, so don't worry about that. Um, but yeah, um, feel free to reach me, follow me at either of those handles. Awesome. Well, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.